What's up and welcome to Ahead of the Curve. This is your host, Jonathan Gellner, and thank you so much for joining us today. I am so excited to welcome 78 Sports as a new sponsor to Ahead of the Curve. And if you're a baseball coach and you're not familiar with 78 Sports, then you need to be. The guys at 78 Sports are a full design, supply, and installation team that does it all for baseball coaches and facilities. Whether you're looking for new hitting mats, replace some L screens, or put up a new batting cage, or even design a brand new indoor facility, the 78 Sports team has you covered for it all. As an exclusive offer for our podcast listeners, 78 Sports is offering special pricing on your order when you mention Ahead of the Curve. Give them a call today at 844-478-TURF to get your order started. You can also check them out on their website at 78sports.com. That's S-E-V-E-N-T-Y, the number 8, sports.com. On today's show, we have on Evan Burke. Evan is an author, keynote speaker, leadership coach, and podcast host specializing in leadership, high performance, and building winning team cultures. Coach Burke has spent nearly two decades coaching elite athletes and leaders within top sports organizations. And as a former NFL and college football coach, he knows how to bring it all together to overcome adversity and elevate high performers to achieve at their highest level. Now he uses his football coaching background to educate and inspire leaders, high performers, and teams for corporate clients and organizations by teaching the principles and practices learned from coaching teams at the highest levels of football. In 2022, Evan released his first book, Finding Intangibles, in which he helps organizations identify the hidden traits that drive elite performers and championship teams. He also hosts a weekly leadership podcast called The Highest Level with Evan Burke. So on the show, we discuss how to evaluate character. We discuss what traits the most successful teams share, and he gives us six extremely beneficial questions to ask when getting to know players and their intangibles. You're going to love this episode with Evan Burke. Evan, welcome to the show. Jonathan, great to be here and excited to chat with you today. Definitely. Well, I I can't remember how we we got in touch, but since then I've been maybe one of your biggest fans on on social media, and I've been binging your podcast, which I definitely will put in the contact section below. But I am I'm so excited to get to talk with you just about character evaluation and tangibles and all of the things that you know we as coaches we we it matters to us. But I, I think it's it's a really undertaught thing. Like I, I mean, we we talked about character. And we talk about intangibles all of the time, but I'm really excited to dig into to how we teach that, how we how we progress that with with parents and with kids, and how, helping them to understand that it's not just talent that gets you places. And so I'm I'm just really excited to 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 talk about that. But tell us a little bit about why and how this became such an important topic for you. Yeah, sure thing. Uh, So just to take it back real quickly, um, my coaching career started a little unconventionally. Uh, A typical uh, college NFL coach is either the son of an NFL executive or coach or played uh, in college, high-level college, or in the pros. And my path was a little different. I wasn't either of those. I actually started coaching when I was 20 years old at um, the Boulder Rec Center with a fourth grade football team and uh, was able to progress through the ranks, coached high school, um, coached at SMU uh, before landing with the Miami Dolphins six years later. So um, a little bit of an unconventional path. And I also coached at McMurray in um, Abilene, Texas and at UCLA. And over the 12 years that I was in 
coaching, um, I, I can remember feeling very early on in my journey uh, that a lot of the recruiting rooms I was in were not really talking about things that I thought were really important when judging an individual player, uh, really around their work ethic, what type of person they were. Uh, these things were never talked about. And I think what I started to see is, is that most teams take a talent-based approach to team building. And um, this book is really about how to take a character-based approach. And I think mm -hmm. when I started to look at who the best teams were, they never were the teams that had the best talent. They had the teams, they were the teams that had the most character. And I think that that kind of holds true regardless of what sport you're looking at uh, specifically within athletics. Um, and really this sure. book is about you know, you mentioned undertaught, and I think this book kind of is a book that I would have wanted as a young 23, 24 year old coach to teach me what to look for. What mm -hmm. type of questions do I ask? Like, who am I talking to when I go into a high school? Um, you know, judging talent is the easy part of the evaluation process. Like the, the best teams, the best organizations create their competitive advantage through their character assessment and evaluation of players. Um, and I just started to see that uh, sure. time and time again, as I progressed through my coaching career, the best coaches I was around thought the same way about how they evaluated talent. And um, that was really the genesis of this book. I did my master's thesis on talent acquisition within college athletics at mm -hmm. SMU. And um, from that study, uh, this book kind of gradually evolved and is really a culmination of the last 20 years of my career. Oh, it's really good. And and I, I like the the subtitle, how to uncover the hidden traits that drive elite performers and championship teams. And, you know, it's, I, I don't know if you found any that, and I'm, I'm sure you, that people would be hard pressed to find a, a, a championship level team that didn't have championship level intangibles or character or cohesiveness within the group. And, I mean, I've been a part of really talented teams that I was miserable and I've been a part of really not great teams, but great people and great students, great, uh, great players like character wise. And it was a joy to go to work every single day. And I, I don't know, were, were you able to find any like examples of, uh, and I'm, I'm sure they would be the outliers, but any outliers on that of, cause when people talk about you know, championship teams, they talk about the team chemistry factors that go into it. Were you able, were, were there any that came up that it was like, no, like nothing of that came up and this was a complete outlier? Cause I, I would, for me, it would be hard pressed to even find a, a championship level team that, that was like that. Yeah. And, and I mean, I can't think of one that I came across and let me just kind of mm -hmm. say that a sure. lot of what I believe as a coach and, and what my work represents is not about winning. It is about achieving your potential. It is about achieving personal excellence. It is about achieving team excellence and not defining those in terms of points scored or winning a game. Um, and I think that that came from just my own experience as a coach, as a coach. And if you look at the teams that do it the right way, of course, we all understand we live in a results oriented world. Like, like we are judged on the wins, but the teams that win consistently and that sustain success don't actually focus on the wins. 
Mm-hmm. They focus on the process. They focus sure. on uh, their culture. And so um, when I'm talking about kind of the best teams, what I'm talking about is those teams that are able to sustain success for a long period of time, which I think is should be the goal of anybody that's involved in sports, especially at the highest levels, sure. uh, building high-performing teams. And so uh, like, it's definitely possible to win if you accumulate enough talent. Um, but if you are neglecting the character side or you're just accumulating talent um, without a care for who is on your team, uh, like that, that, that does not sustain success. And, you know, a lot of teams, the one that I'm thinking of in particular is Nick Saban with the Alabama football team. Mm-hmm. It's very easy to look at him and the success that he's had and just say, well, he's got the best players. But there's a certain discipline to the way that Nick Saban and his staff recruit and mm-hmm. evaluate talent and build their team. Sure. And, you know, there was a story a few years ago. It's a number one defensive lineman in the nation on their campus and felt felt he needed to lose weight, telling him repeatedly throughout the recruiting process he needed to lose weight. Uh, and Nick Saban asked him point blank, you know, what, uh, what do you think you need to do to become a better player? And the player couldn't think of anything. Um, after this, you know, three day weekend where they had basically just hammered home that he needs to lose weight if he wants to become a great player. Mm-hmm. And they passed on that guy. And a lot of coaches would not do that. And you can say, well, Nick Saban's got so many lined up. And it's like, Nick Saban does not have success just because he's got them, quote unquote, lined up. Sure. Um, you know, he picks the right players. Um, and I think that's the thing that people overlook a lot of times when we're thinking about building teams is they think about it in terms of accumulating talent. And what it's really about is picking the right players for your team and the mm-hmm. culture you're trying to build. Well, let's go all in on that. Like, how do we, how do we, uh, so most of our listeners, they'll be amateur coaches and, you know, you're thinking college, but I would say a vast majority are high school uh, coaches and, you know, different sports uh, with, 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 in regards to that. But how do we, how do we evaluate character? There will be, there will be coaches that are listening who can't make cuts. There are coaches that are listening who can. And just just getting an overall feel of like we can't choose all of our players. We in a sense, we are getting, you know, what we get that's within the school system and who wants to come play, you know, for us. Uh, So how do we how do we help with the character evaluation piece in regards to like high school coaches? Yeah, certain thing. Certainly, Uh, you know, that's interesting because I think that. uh, it's a it's a much uh, more challenging job, right? Mm-hmm. Like you have sure. to get what you are given, uh, and you have to turn it into, like you were saying, the the type of play that you want to have on the field and the type of culture. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of that probably has to do with who you um, quote unquote promote on the team, uh, and, and who you kind of show the team like who they can trust. Uh, and I think like when it comes to that, I think you know specifically looking at like the character traits. Um, Obviously it's hard to tell from just a 20 minute conversation with somebody. Um, But there are certain things that you can do in terms of talking to an individual uh, and just simple things that you can kind of notice. Um, So for instance, uh, when they come out to the practice field, 
Are they engaging with their teammates? Um, I would look at things like how are they engaging, not the coaching staff, but how do they engage the athletic trainers? How do they engage maybe the parents that are watching practice? How are they engaging the people around the program that have mm -hmm. no uh, influence over how much they play? Okay. Uh, that those are the type of things that you're looking for when it comes down to the character evaluation to kind of start telling you about those people. Uh, and then, you know, practice and interaction with teammates is huge. Like what is their mindset going into a practice? You can kind of tell somebody that is very competitive and where that sport is important to them by the way that they maybe warm up for that practice or, or watching them practice. Uh, versus somebody who maybe doesn't care as much or maybe is just like slightly aloof in their in their warm up or in sure. the seriousness that they take to practice. Mm -hmm. um, and um, obviously, you know, when it comes to evaluation and you're selecting people, you have to weigh all these things. That's that's why you're right. collecting this information. And I think, you know, for the coaches out there, uh, you know, these are just things that you can kind of use to pick up on you know, who on your team has that type of character. Uh, and then, you know, I guess for me as a coach, I would be thinking like, what role am I going to try and put them in? Mm -hmm. Right. Um, so it becomes about where players fit on the team uh, because, you know, using football as an example, I have the firm belief that the quarterback of a football team has to be without question, the hardest worker on the football team without question. So I don't want somebody uh, as the quarterback of my team that doesn't fully represent the hard work that we're going to need and the in the character that we're trying to promote, the culture that we're trying to promote on the mm -hmm. team. Sure. Um, so, but, but like that other person, he could be a, a receiver or a linebacker or a safety or something else that doesn't have such a prominent position on the team. Because mm -hmm. um, then when you start to put people with questionable character in positions where they have influence over everybody um, and you don't have a choice, whether you could just cut them or, you know, let them transfer. Right. Sure. Um, now you're kind of letting them run the team. And those are, those are tough decisions to make. I'm, I'm fully aware of that. No doubt. And, you know, we, uh, this, the high school that I'm at, we have tryouts and I, I've been at a couple different high schools now where you do. And I've always thought like, how neat would it be to be able to get a character reference on some of these guys? Because, you know, you can hide it in different aspects of your life. Like you can segment it and, and understand what coaches are looking for in a tryout potentially. But when you get, you know, teachers involved, uh, like, Hey, how was this kid in class? How did they act? You know, principals, and then, you know, one of the, one of the things, like I had a couple of cheer girl candidates in class and the, their, their cheer head coach would send, or they, the kids would send an email that said, Hey, would you fill this out for my coach? And it was, you know, questions about their character, you know, how do they act in class? And it was a rating system. It was, you know, getting their grades. And I, I really enjoy it. Or, or is there anything that we should be concerned about with this student or, you know, leadership capabilities. And, and there were about five or six questions, which, which took probably, you know, 45 seconds to a minute to fill out. But I was always like, oh, wow. Like if, you know, if their teachers are being honest, this could be a great evaluation tool as well. Oh yeah. 
I a hundred percent agree with this. And, um, you know, just as a quick parallel, as a, as a college recruiter, mm-hmm. I think some of the best people you can talk to are the academic counselors at the school. Um, cause mm-hmm. in a sense, as a college recruiter, I know what the coach is going to tell me. The sure. coach is going to tell me this person is such a hard worker and right. like, they're great, but they benefit from having a, let's just say in this case, like a division one recruited player. They're going to tell me, uh, what I think, what they think I want to hear. Um, and a lot of times, and I've had experiences where I've gone into schools and talked to an academic counselor and I don't need to talk to them for an hour. Uh, I literally, all I need to say is, Oh, you work with Jonathan. Oh, you've worked with him for the last two years. Um, is he, has he been challenging at all? Mm -hmm. I can remember one case recruiting a very talented player. I had never met him and I went into the school and before I even went to the coach, I went to the academic counselor and I asked her that question and she paused <laughs> and she was like, Oh man, uh, Jonathan is challenging. Mm. <laughs> so it's like, I just got the answer. I just saved myself all the time to recruit this kid sure. because he's treating that academic counselor, uh, the way like what his true character represents. Mm-hmm. Like he's going to treat the coach great because the coach has power over his playing time. Mm-hmm. But the academic counselor, he looks as like a nuisance and treats right. her accordingly. And so what do I think is going to happen if I recruit this individual who, by the way, would have been, I mean, he was better than a lot of the players we already had on the team. What was, what's going to happen when I recruit this individual to our school and now I've got to deal with him right. as the receivers coach, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I don't want that. Um, and like to a greater extent, if I'm a head coach, I don't want that on my team. Uh, there are certain exceptions that we make and that we, that we have to make, especially in high performance in the high performance business. But it's just kind of knowing when to make those exceptions or when to take those risks. And I think a lot of times it's, it goes back to what is the strength of your team? What is the team chemistry? What is the culture that you've already built? Because if you're trying to build a culture and you bring in a lot of guys that don't necessarily align with that Mm -hmm. culture, you're making it that much harder for you to build a sustainable winner, uh, regardless of what sport we're talking about. Sure. No, that's a, that's a great point. And you know, one of the, my favorite things that you have talked about, and that's the talent paradox. And so go ahead and like drop your quote on, on the talent paradox, you know, how you came up with it. But the first time you said it, it just like, I had to pause the podcast and think about it. And I was like, that is, that is extremely good. So this might be a moment for our listeners, but tell us a little bit about, about that and, and drop that for us. And how, how did that come about? Yeah. The talent paradox talent is essential to success, but success is not determined by talent. And this was just kind of a combination of the, the research and the writing that I was doing as I was putting this book together. And I was thinking in my head, like, how can I convey everything that I want this book to stand for in one sentence? And I think it's just fair to point out with the talent paradox, like I, I am not trying to advocate a full 100% evaluation on character without taking in 
the evaluation of the talent. Like the reality of performing in highly competitive environments is that you need talent to be Mm -hmm. successful. But I think where a a lot of people go wrong and especially people that build teams is they think it's all about the talent. Mm -hmm. They think it's 80% talent and then 20% culture. And the really great coaches, I'm talking like the, the guys I was studying, Greg Popovich, Steve Kerr, Bill Belichick, Nick Saban, David Shaw, like these guys, they know that they don't win because of the talent. They mm-hmm. win because of the collective character of the individuals in their locker rooms. And so that was really kind of the genesis of the talent paradox and just acknowledging, yes, you need talent, but also finding a way to convey in very simple form that like your success is not determined by your talent. It is determined by all of these other hidden traits, these characteristics that make up a person. And when you're talking about a group collective, end up making what your team culture is. And a lot of people use the word culture and I've seen it in coaches I've worked with that, you know, we all love to say the word culture, but we don't actually define it or we don't actually hold ourselves as team builders to that code. And I think what this book truly represents, uh, again, I was writing it from a coach's perspective. It's really a book about how do you build winning culture without using the word culture. And so it's kind of reverse engineering. Mm -hmm. What type of team do we want to be? And then going out and acquiring the individuals that are going to help us create that team culture. And, uh, you know, I, I think that's just something I saw time and time again in my career was pointing at phrases on the wall and thinking that that's culture. And I think really what it comes down to is your people become your culture. Mm-hmm. And uh, the talent paradox is simply a way to acknowledge that we all need talent to succeed and compete in these environments. Uh, but our success is not determined by our talent. It is determined by the hidden traits and intangibles that we possess. I really like that. And I've got a much less eloquent way and story of of actually talking about that same thing. So we've got a player on our team and he's a a, like grinder kid that you, he actually dislocated his knee in the semifinals and went on to catch that game and the next game. Uh, And we, you know, we won a state championship with him behind the plate. And he and I were talking the other day, you know, we were, hitting in the cages and this is a a lot of times like between rounds in baseball there's there's time to talk or you're picking up baseballs and and kids will share things with you and it was on his mind that he wasn't getting recruited at the level that he wanted and and to the some of the schools that he was interested in and there was another kid in the area who is very highly recruited but like is well known that his character is not there and so i i talked with him about unfortunately at there's and I call it the talent and turd scale. And I said, when you're extremely talented and you're just enough of a turd to where they could want you, then there's going to be things that they can slip and go through. Unfortunately, I said, if you're a high character, high talent guy, then everyone wants you. But if you're a low talent and high turd, no one wants you. So you've got to like, you've got to understand he's extremely talented. It's going to, you know, if, if he continues down this path, it may catch up with him. But at this point in time, he's so talented that there will be guys that take risks on this kid. And so I've called it the talent and turd scale. I don't know why. And it is, again, it's 
it's a very less eloquent way of saying that, but unfortunately that's true a lot. And you see those, those cases of, there are a few instances where the kids correct and they get around a different group of people and they change, but I don't know if that's a majority of people. And you've been in college athletics. Can you, can you tell us what you feel like the percentages are of, of kids that actually form to the mold versus they are, you know, they're out within a year? Yeah. I mean, I think that this is why the character evaluation is so important is so that as, as a team, as a college or a pro organization, like you want that information, you want as much information as you can before you make that decision. Now, the reality is the higher up you go, uh, the, the smaller, the talent gap. And really mm -hmm. that's where the character becomes even more important. Right. Um, I, you know, I just off the top of my head, I'm thinking of somebody like Antonio Brown or Johnny Manziel in football, where these guys are very talented, but there becomes a point where no team wants to put up with that. Uh, and we don't have time to wait for you to mature. Right. So I think that what number one, kind of going back to what we talked about a moment ago, you need to have a strong locker room when you bring in people that you're taking risks on or that you know maybe have some questionable character traits or you're making that trade off on talent. Because if you have a strong infrastructure in place, they can quickly find out that their attitude, their behavior, whatever, is not accepted at that place. Sure. And mm -hmm. they can oftentimes make that decision for you. Uh, if you don't have that strong locker room presence or you don't have that strong culture in place where nobody's going to stand up to Antonio Brown and say, hey, like that, that doesn't fly here. Um, you know, Tom Brady can do that to Antonio Brown. Um, no other quarterback in the league could have done what Tom Brady did. No other coach in the league could have done what Tom Brady did, right? Um, and I think that that's when you can kind of make those exceptions. But if you don't have that structure in place, it's going to be very hard to bring somebody in. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think like, um, you know, to, to go off of your talent and turd scale, which I actually like <laughs> that. I don't think that's such a bad phrase okay, um, because I kind of made a, a matrix myself uh, the other day where I was like, it's a, it's a graph with talent on one axis and character on the other. Right. And mm -hmm. Antonio Brown is like high on the talent sure. portion, but very low on the character. And I think that that's where you kind of have to have a good understanding of who you're bringing into your team what their development profile is going to be like. And then, you know, ultimately this book is not a hundred percent on how to get it right every single time. I think that anybody that is uh, willing to be honest with you in terms of talent evaluation will tell you that um, like this book is about reducing the uncertainty uh, that is affiliated with uh, drafting players or recruiting players or picking any performer to be on your team. Uh, so it's not going to be perfect, but what this is aimed to do is to just create a competitive advantage over all of the other teams you compete against by prioritizing the character in the evaluation and selection process. So, um, yet you have to have that strong culture in place, but I think mm -hmm. also just understanding who you're bringing onto your team, are they going to be a problem? Do they have a history of causing problems? Um, and then understanding like you are like, if you select that player, you are assuming that risk, like mm -hmm. the Cleveland Browns acquiring Deshaun Watson, like nothing that is happening, like 
this is all because they chose to make that risk. They, sure. they made mm-hmm. the decision that like we, this guy's so talented, we don't care what type of human being he is. Um, now, you know, that's for those owners and those team executives to go home and explain it to their wives and their mm-hmm. sisters and their daughters, sure. right? Like, what do we represent? Uh, yes, we're all here to win, but like, I also believe that having significance is just as important when we're talking about competing in sports. And um, you mentioned earlier about being on losing teams that were just probably the most enjoyable greatest experiences for you. And I, I can attest to that as well. Uh, unfortunately, through my career, I was part of several losing teams. Mm-hmm. And um, like the best, oftentimes, yes, we're, we're here to win. But like we created those bonds, that team chemistry that really kind of stood the test of time. Now, 15 years later, yeah, that's yeah, we didn't win. But like, that's not what I think about when I think about those teams. So again, it goes back to what you're trying to create and whether you are willing to take that risk uh, when when weighing that character um, and, and taking people that don't fit the type of person and the type of character you want to build on your team. I love that. And you know, while you're talking about team chemistry, so what, what's a good way to you know measure it or you know reflect upon it? I'm like like uh, say you're the head coach of a team. What are some different strategies that you would use besides a feeling? Because I think you know, team chemistry, you feel it when, when you're there, it's kind of like culture, like you, you feel it, it's a belief, it's a behavior, it's an experience. And it's really hard to pinpoint one thing that leads to that. It's probably multifactorial, but how do we, are there different ways that we can measure team chemistry? And, you know, if there are, what are they? Yeah, I think so. I mean, um, I, I've interviewed some people on my podcast that have done actually some work around researching team chemistry and going as, as, as detailed into counting the number of butt slaps, uh, on, on a basketball game, uh, one team versus another. Mm -hmm. Uh, now who's doing that actual research. That sounds like the most (laughs) tedious thing I can imagine. Um, I would, I would say from like my experience, you're right. Like when you're in it, you, you can tell. Um, but like, I look at things where, uh, I'm, I'm located in Dallas, Texas. I am, I, I was born here. Mm -hmm. I am the biggest Dallas Mavericks fan. And since we just had the playoffs, Mavericks went on a pretty nice little run. And for anybody that watched those playoff games, one of the things that probably stood out to you, if even if you're just a casual basketball fan, is like the Dallas Mavericks bench. Their players that were just not even suited up for the game were standing the entire game and cheering the entire game like they were fans. Um, and in particular, against the number one uh, team in the league this year, Phoenix Suns, like they would show Phoenix's bench during these games and they were all just sitting there. On mm-hmm. the bench. Um, now, obviously, Dallas Dallas won those won that series, um, so it becomes very glaring after the fact. But even even within that series, you can just tell like that is a team that is connected. They're rooting for each other, um, and you can kind of get a sense too when uh, when a team doesn't have everybody rooting for each other, right? And it seems crazy, but like guys not high fiving you or celebrating with you when you run off the field or when you make something good happen. I I can remember I was at UCLA and, um, we were, you know, obviously UCLA top, you know, playing one of the top divisions. Uh, we were recruiting one of the top players in the nation at his position. And 
you know, without a doubt could play for any power five team in the nation without question. And, uh, we had already offered him. We were kind of like trying to, you know, reel him in and he, like some coaches had gone to watch him play and we were talking about him in a recruiting meeting and some coach said, yeah, coach, just like, just so you know, like he, it was kind of weird. He set this national record or whatever he did. And like, he ran off the field and nobody was high-fiving him. Only coaches were high-fiving him. And, uh, I remember cause like we quickly, uh, you know, coach quickly dismissed that. And we were like, well, like that's just because this and this and this, and people are, uh, people are jealous or whatever. Right. And, um, that player, even though he was extremely talented, came on to our team and had like a very similar effect. And so, uh, you know, it's just like an interesting insight into, well, do you make a big deal out of like running off the field and people not high-fiving him or celebrating with him? Uh, or is that something that you look at and gives you reason to pause? Like maybe we still would have taken that player anyway, but like maybe we would have had a more full understanding of what that player could have influence uh, that player could have had on the team and the chemistry involved. Right. Uh, So I think of things like that where they're small things, but I think if you really start to look at them, you can really start to notice who are the players that everybody rallies around um, and who are the teams that have that great chemistry and who are the teams that are just out there playing. Uh, And unfortunately, a lot of times, especially in pro sports, a lot of teams are kind of just out there playing, enjoying being ball players, not really, you know, out there being a team. Sure. Do you think body language can be indicative of that as well? Or is that something that could be possibly overblown by coaches? I think body language is important. Uh, I, I think all of this, you could make the case, could could potentially be overblown by coaches, right? Um, but I personally believe that all of those little pieces, they're just really like information nuggets. And in my book, I kind of talk about Yes, you're trying to find intangibles, but where this all leads is you're really trying to find the story of each individual athlete. And you're trying to understand why they are the way they are, what challenges have they faced, what is their background like, what opportunities have they had, or what opportunities have they not had. And so that is not done through one story or seeing a player run off a field and not get high fived by teammates. Like that's just a small piece of information that you're using to build the story of that player. Sure. And I think, yeah. And I think the body language piece, it's like, that is something that can be used. Like one thing in particular that comes to mind, you know, for high school in particular, if that player, let's just say they're playing basketball and are on the bench and that coach is coaching that player hard, right? Like, you know, coaching him. Uh, Is that player rolling his eyes, looking down at the ground? Or is that player looking at that coach in the eyes uh, and taking that that hard coaching? Um, I think those are things that kind of give you insight into that player. Now, if I saw something like that, I would think, okay, this player probably understands uh, like that he's not a finished product. Mm-hmm. He's coachable. He cares what that coach thinks. He's engaged. He wants to get better. Uh, he has a growth mindset. Those are the things that I would deduce from that one little interaction, but I still need to find other information that supports that. 
Um, you know, I was referencing talking to high school coaches earlier. Hey, coach, yeah, he's a hard worker. Okay, why is he a hard worker? Mm-hmm. Not just because you say so. Like, I want to see it. I want to see what time he comes out to practice. If he comes out just in time or if he's there 30 minutes early, what's he like in the weight room? Uh, you have to find all of the supporting examples to support kind of like the story that you are trying to build for that player or maybe the thesis you have around that player. And I think body language can be definitely a key part of that. Okay. You know, I, I after reading your book and, and listening to your podcast, I, I can't remember uh, what guest you had, but they, they mentioned the importance of clarity of role and goals. And, you know, I, thinking back to my career too, if it, it would have been a hard conversation for a coach to tell me, Hey, you, you know, you're, you're the backup here, but you know, you're the next guy up and I'm going to get you opportunities when I can. Uh, he fulfills on that. It makes me not question every single day where I'm at. And it may be hard up front. But I also think that it is an important conversation for coaches to have. And when you mentioned the Mavericks and versus the Suns, I don't know if that if that came up or not. But I just wonder, you know, with the Mavericks players, do they completely understand what role they are given, and they they have clarity and understanding within that, and that's what helps lead them to you know being the best teammates that they can be on the bench because they know. That's their role with the collective group. And they may, may be excited. They may be great people as well, which we all want to be around. But when I heard that, I was like, yes, that makes a, a ton of sense for me to just to understand what is my role here? What are some things that I can do? What are some goals? If I'm not happy with it, that I can continue, continue to strive towards, which would help with motivation, but also that team cohesion piece that I'm not looking at this guy, wondering why he's playing in front of me uh, without any indication or help to get more playing time, if that makes sense. Yeah, hundred uh, percent. I think the podcast you are referencing, the one that comes to mind is Dickie Simpkins, the former Chicago Bulls player. Um, yes, yes. I've, I binged a ton of them, so it, that, oh, but that does sound familiar. Very, very cool. Appreciate the support. Um, I, I loved that episode partially cause I grew up in the nineties and, but we obviously watched all oh, those yeah. Jordan Bulls teams and Dickie was a part of the second three peat, uh, as a young player. I think he was a rookie in 94, 95, uh, when Jordan came back to the team and he was talking about his role and how he knew that like he wasn't going to play 40 minutes a game. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was an adjustment, but he knew what was expected of him. Uh, and he kind of, I think in that episode too, he kind of elaborated that uh, because of like the way that he approached his role, regardless of how small or seemingly insignificant it was, Michael Jordan hired him when he went to go run the Wizards because like that, like he knew the type of work ethic and the type of approach that Dickie took uh, to the team concept. And so uh, if you, if for anybody out there that wants to research like the clarity of role piece, uh, Steve Kerr is the person that I would go research. He has done an amazing job of defining roles, but also of giving, like keeping players engaged, mm-hmm. which I think is a place that a lot of coaches uh, fall short. And honestly, like I fell short in that regard in my coaching career too. Um, like Steve Kerr is really great at finding 10 minutes for the 12th guy on the bench to play, uh, on a Tuesday night in Charlotte. 
And that means nothing to anybody except for that player. It means the entire world because when you're sitting there and you're like, yeah, like just want you to stay fresh. Just want you, you know, if, if Jonathan goes down and then Evan goes down and then Chris goes down, we need you. <laughs> like mm-hmm. that's right. not, that is not going to fire me up. Like you are going to lose me very quick. And so getting everybody a role and in, in making sure that, that not only you say that it's important to them, but you make them feel that it's important to them. Uh, sometimes that might just be if you're a red shirt player on a college team, like you're there to be a, a hitting dummy. You're there to run the other team's offense mm-hmm. that week. Um, you know, uh, like when we're talking about teams, I think like that's really crucial. And then like, it says a lot about you too, and maybe even the team culture, like and how your team accepts those roles. Uh, and you mentioned the Mavericks. I think of somebody like Theo Pinson. And for those that don't know, Theo Pinson was like the 16th guy on the Mavericks bench this year. I think he got signed because of like there was a COVID outbreak in December and he ended up playing for the Mavs for like a 10 day contract and they signed him for the year. And if you go back and watch those playoff games, him and Tim Hardaway in their street clothes are standing the entire game. I mean, I'm getting goosebumps right now talking about it, partially Mm -hmm. because it's the Dallas Mavericks, but also because (laughs) like as a coach, as like a sports nerd, that's what's great about team sports, right? It's like pulling for the other guys. Tim Hardaway should be playing 39 minutes a game in the playoffs this year. Like, because he's injured, a guy like Dodo Finney-Smith ends up taking all of his minutes, playing the most minutes in the playoffs per game this year, and gets a brand new $60 million contract. That's probably going to mean Tim Hardaway is not going to be on the team next year. Mm -hmm. And Tim Hardaway is standing on the bench every single play, every single game of that playoffs. Like, his entire world depends on that play, that Mm -hmm. game. Like that tells you everything you need to know about Tim Hardaway, right? Like somebody who is there for the team, for his teammates. And so, yeah, he's injured. And so it's easy for him. Like, what else is he going to do? Sit at the other end of the bench. But like a lot of guys would go to the other end of the bench Mm -hmm. and just mope. Right. And that's what I kind of loved about this Mavericks team. And, And I think that coaches can go uh, can do a lot in terms of helping players especially younger players or developing players and it's hard to to give 10 minutes to a guy who's developing and doesn't know and also by the way understanding that they're going to make mistakes um and, and i think that's a big thing too is like if you are going to help guys develop and, and and create these roles or define these roles make sure that you are following through giving them opportunities to develop and then listen like Theo Pinson plays four minutes in a playoff game. He's not going to rival what, what Luka Doncic is going to do. Right. So like if you hold him to that standard, like you're being a little unfair to that player um, and, and just giving them opportunities to go out there and play and, and kind of like feel important to the team. I think that goes a long way in terms of uh, clarity of role. Sure. No, I, I love that. I think that's such a good, such a good point. And, you know, one of the things that, that I, I, I really want to dig in on an answer, uh, get you to answer for us is you, you're taking a step back from coaching, but if you could go back into your coaching role and you could pick whatever year that you would want, but let's say this is, you know, you're an on-field coach and, and let's take, you know, the recruiting evaluation side out of it. Of all the things that you've learned within this, what do you feel like you would have told your past self or you wish you could go back and you could, 
you know, do this different or start to figure out this process earlier or just give yourself advice just from a coaching standpoint, you know, recruiting is a completely different animal, but I would love to know, like as an on-field coach, what do you wish you could have told yourself, you know, seven years ago? Seven years ago. Wow. Uh, well, if I had any time to go tell myself anything, I would probably (laughs) go whisper in my ear circa 2002, 2003, that I need to go go work on LSU's football staff <laughs> since they had, <laughs> sure. that was Nick Saban's uh, national championship team that had like 10 future college head coaches on it. Oh yeah, no doubt. Uh, so that would be the, the number one thing I would tell myself. Mm. Uh, but, but I think, Google. yeah, I think like the biggest things that I guess this kind of ties into the work I've been doing the last, you know, five, six years. If I could go back just, you know, 2014, 2015, my last two years coaching at UCLA, my last two years in football um, would be, you know, number one, having the ability to admit mistakes. Um, and, and I guess in part that kind of plays into eliminating ego, which are, sure. which are two areas that I've mm-hmm. done a lot of uh, studying on. And, and I do a lot of work with my clients on. Um, and quite honestly, I don't feel like I was always, uh, really great in that in that aspect, right? I think there's always a um, there's always like this belief that I can't let people think that I don't know what I'm talking about. Um, and like what I found is that people don't want perfect leaders; they want human leaders. No doubt. And so if good. I don't understand if I don't understand what's happening, or I have a question, or I make a mistake, like that's okay. Um, my, my players aren't going to kill me for that. Where they will kill me is if I make a mistake and then I act like it wasn't a mistake or I push mm-hmm. back when they call me out for my mistake. Um, that's when you get exposed and that's when you lose all of your credibility. And I think the other thing I would tell myself is to appreciate where I was. Mm-hmm. And I think it's very common in coaching, especially to be looking at other people to be looking at other opportunities, uh, to be looking at like where you are or, or quote unquote, who's holding me back or what I believe is holding me back and not just truly appreciating like where you are and the people around you. Um, that those would be the two things I would probably encourage myself if I could go back. No, I love that. Those are so good. Some of the same ones that I'm working on as well. Uh, but I, 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 I stumbled upon, well, I guess I stumbled upon, I read in your book, uh, you talked about six top questions to ask to get to know a person's character and intangibles. I would love to, you know, read one at a time and then you can just give some insight into, you know, why that one or why these six and why you think they're so powerful. If that's okay with you, would that be okay? Oh yeah, that sounds fun actually. Perfect. I haven't done that before, so would love to. Awesome. So question number one was, what's your greatest achievement? You know, what what insight does that give us into the players and then how can we use that question uh, to evaluate them? I think this question kind of speaks to how a person defines success for themselves and where I think that particularly in team building, where this kind of like starts to really help you understand that person is what is their answer? Do they say something that is associated with themselves? Is it a personal achievement? Is it some, some type of individual glory? Like, you know, when I was written about in the paper, when I won this award, or is it a team centered achievement? Uh, Is it about, 
Is it about competing? Is it about being part of a team? Uh, I think that that sometimes can really help you understand that mindset of that person. Um, again, you know, all of this is just taken one piece at a time. And it doesn't mean if they say, oh, yeah, this I was named all conference, that it means they're a selfish player. But that's a selfish answer. Right. Like, I think anybody that has any type of individual success uh, would would acknowledge and, and understand that it's because of the people around them. Um, so that would be an opportunity to kind of like dig further if they were to answer with an individual achievement is maybe kind of like have them explain uh, like the background to it or why is that so important to you? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if they say, oh, that was representative of my team. Okay. That c- they're kind of bringing it back to the team. But if they just say, you know, I work so hard and I should be acknowledged for, <laughs> you know, the greatness that I put on the field, eh, you know, they're, they're kind of giving you a, a bit of a selfish answer. And if you're building a team, like you want people that are going to do what's best for the team. And that's where this question kind of can help understand at least that mindset, help you better understand their team mindset. Oh, great answer. Question number two, give an example of of adversity that you've overcome and how you've pushed through it. Uh, I think like when we're really talking about like the evaluation process and, and character individual and intangibles, like this is really at the heart of everything is like failing experiencing setbacks, challenges, any type of adversity and how people respond from that. And I think, you know, there's examples all over sports in particular of, of how these things play out. Right. Um, and, and when we're talking about sports, we're really talking about a world and an environment that is all about random events and setbacks. Right. So if we're thinking about like what constitutes success in sports, yeah, you can say talent, uh, but like it's not about talent. The teams that win and have success aren't the teams that are the most talented. It's the teams that get knocked down, mm-hmm. that have the ability to improve and get better from being knocked down and mm-hmm. get back up to face the next challenge or to face the same challenge, uh, to be relentless in their approach of continuing to face that adversity or overcome that adversity. Uh, so I think like when you ask this question, this is really getting at the heart of, uh, you know, <laughs> what that person's heart is, uh, like what type of resiliency do they have? Um, and a lot of times this comes from their passion to be a great teammate or their, their passion to be great in their sport or the importance that their sport takes uh, within their life. So I, I think that this is really at the heart of everything that you're trying to find out, in particular, the resiliency. And you want to know, because sports in particular is all about random events and setbacks, you want to know how is this person going to respond to those random events and, and setbacks and also mm-hmm. gives you an idea of like what they deem as to be adversity. Um, one person's adversity is obviously going to be different from another person's adversity. Uh, you know, but I, I think that kind of gives a little bit of a frame of reference as to what that person has been through and, and how they've pushed through. No, I love that. And, you know, reading through some of these questions as you, this almost sounds just like the book, which I, I, <laughs> I can always appreciate cause I'm, I've got the questions here and, and you're talking. So the, right after the questions, which is another plug for this book, you've got the why and the dig further and some, some really good teachable moments. And this, this question, like this one hit me over the side of the head. So I'm going to skip to question number four, because I think that this one is so good. And it's, 
what's the one thing that people commonly misunderstand about you? I think that question is so, so good. Yeah, I think this is, uh, it's a little kind of maybe uh, second level or third level, whatever you want to say. I mean, it's just a little deeper than the typical conversations that, you know, college coaches or evaluators have around a player. And I think that this can, uh, number one, give an, a player maybe an opportunity to address some things uh, that you've seen or maybe have questions on. Uh, and I think it kind of gets to the heart of, of just kind of, um, you want to learn as much as you can about this person. And a lot of times how they feel they are misunderstood can give you a good indication of what their own mindset is or how they view themselves. Uh, and I think that, um, you know, at the end of the day, you're bringing, you're adding a person to your team. And so you want to understand uh, the type of person that you're bringing onto your team, you know, when we're making a selection, you are making a selection to be for someone to be in your life or your team's life for 10, 12 hours a day for every single day. Right. Uh, mm -hmm. if you're on like, you know, a college or a pro team and, and if you don't, if you don't select that person, you're making the decision that they're not going to be a part of your life and your team 10 to 12 hours a day. And nobody really talks about that. Um, so this question is really kind of like understanding, like once we bring this person onto our team, uh, like who are we going to be dealing with? And I think it's just kind of a question that, that helps dig a little further into how they view themselves and how other people uh, might view them or how that person feels other people might view them. No, that's, that's really, really good. So question number five, sorry, my book just closed on me. So this is an mm. editable, <laughs> an editable moment. Question number five is what's the biggest mistake you've made? And, you know, I, I wonder, can I, can I ask this question with like below 18 year old kids or should I, should I rephrase it? Or do you think that it would be appropriate for, you know, 15, 16 year olds or would I need to rephrase something like that? Hmm. I, I don't, that's a good question. Is there something in particular you're uh, thinking of? Like, why would that, why would you need to reframe that question to a younger player? Oh, just like, uh, you know, given, given their, their age and sharing information that they would feel having to share information like that whenever they're, you know, before 18, maybe uh, a thing, or, or I may, may say, you know, what's the, what's the biggest mistake that you've made uh, in sports or tell me about a moment that you, that you failed and how you got up from it. Uh, something along those lines, because, you know, I, I don't know, I like, have you gotten, uh, what, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, it's interesting. I, I probably have to have a, a few more minutes to think about that, but like, I can see where you're going. So my first thought, and I kind of talk a little bit about this in the book is, okay you're asking me questions and I'm, and I outlined questions and numbers in my book, uh, but there's also an element to kind of disarming people at, mm -hmm. throughout the evaluation process or the interview process. Uh, so it doesn't need to be, okay, sit down here, Jonathan. Okay. So what's your greatest achievement? You know, this can be done in a very casual conversational way. Sure. And I think that's probably where a lot of the best answers or the truest answers could come from. 
so like in the evaluation process, as you're having conversations with somebody, and, and especially if they're younger, maybe kind of prefacing it with like acknowledging your own mistakes uh, and, and kind of like, or maybe, oh, if I was in that position, I would have made so many mistakes. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, trying to lead them down that path to see, like, do they understand um when they make mistakes, are they able to acknowledge their mistakes? Uh, you know, something I, I believe, and I've really kind of like really, uh, you know, come to believe this very strongly in the last uh, year or so, the value of failure and understanding, uh, you know, uh, I think you were mentioning Josh Boyd, uh, when we had first connected and mm-hmm. I interviewed him on my podcast and it was just an awesome conversation. And he was kind of describing, um, just understanding how valuable having a setback is for a player and the players that really have the best success are the players that understand that that's part of the process. And like specifically in baseball, it's, it is a game of failure. Correct me if I'm wrong. I mean, I I think that's a fair characterization where if you are a batter. Yeah. And I mean, so, you know, this goes back to understanding what you're looking for in your players, understanding what wins in your sport. Uh, because in baseball, regardless of how good a hitter you are, if you don't understand that failure is part of the game and you don't have that resiliency to like keep coming back, uh, like that kid, that kid's probably never going to make it out of the minor leagues, regardless of how talented uh, he or she is. Right. And so I think that you want to try and just understand, does that player have a growth mindset? Uh, do they have the ability to, um, develop in the face of setbacks and challenges or are setbacks and challenges, uh, like representative of the value they place on themselves. And so Mm -hmm. a lot of this goes back to Carol Dweck's book mindset, uh, which is about, growth mindset and how it really kind of dictates success. And, um, that is where I I think a lot of these ideas for me came from, uh, is just, you want those players that understand that failure is part of the game and failure is the path to the success and, and the greatness that they hope to achieve. No doubt. Well, the last question that I have for you, which I think is a great disarming question is, you know, what questions do you have for me? And I, I think like you mentioned it, doing it in a casual environment rather than when I've done it at like the end of practice and say, hey, does anyone have any questions? And everyone looks around and it's like no one has questions, but everyone has questions. They're just afraid to ask them. I love that one. I, I'm sure you've gotten similar responses based on the on the chuckle on your end. But I, I love that question, too. And I think that that's a great disarming question just to to lower your defenses and get them to talking with you, especially one on one. Yes, totally. And I'm chuckling because I've made that same, you know, mistake. Everybody's looking around. They're like, we're trying to get out of here, coach. Mm -hmm. Like if anybody asks you anything, uh, you know, we're going to go crazy. So um, I I totally get that. And you're right. Like the power can come in doing it in a very conversational way. Uh, I think, you know, a lot of people, everybody loves to talk about themselves. And I think like one of the things in coaching that I didn't understand till I was an older, more mature coach is to like give players an opportunity to share with me what's going on in their lives or what they're going through. Um, And like, I thought that I had to ask a very direct question, uh, but really it's just about being there to listen. And um, this question in particular, asking them if they have questions, uh, think of it from like a college perspective 
recruiter's perspective, um, I'm at UCLA, I'm trying to figure out if you're a fit for our team, but like, what do you have for me? Well, if their questions are how far is the beach from campus or how far is Hollywood Mm -hmm. or I saw Denzel spoke to the team last year. Do you think he'll speak (laughs) this year? Um, They're asking you the wrong questions. Like that player's not going to be a fit for building a sustained call. Like that player doesn't care about UCLA, but if that player is saying, yeah, um, you know, I don't have the same size as Anthony Barr, but like what, what ways did you guys develop him as he transitioned to running back that you can Mm -hmm. help me develop? Like that shows how they think about making this decision that shows that their questions are all about how am I going to get better? Um, you know, how am I going to fit on this team? Is coach Burke the, the best person to, uh, develop me into the mm-hmm. player that I hope to become. Sure. Um, and so I think like things like that are what I think about because, you know, and it, it becomes different, right? Cause like if in the pros you're selecting players, mm-hmm. uh, in high school, you, you basically just have players trying out that are already at your school. Um, and, and so I think like understanding their desire to be a part of your team doesn't always maybe apply. Um, but, but maybe, maybe understanding like the level of engagement and the level and the level that they are thinking about their own development uh, of being on that team uh, can maybe kind of like show itself in these questions. And again, like this all goes back to finding growth mindset, finding players that are passionate and going to be resilient in the face of adversity and finding Mm -hmm. people that are going to be good team players. Um, And so if they're asking questions around anything that is in any way, shape or form related to those three areas, I think they're showing you uh, the type of character, the type of thinking that you're wanting in the players that you want to build your team with. No doubt. Well, Evan, man, I, I can't thank you enough for the conversation that we had today. I can't thank you enough for, uh, for the book and for writing it. And I really encourage all of our listeners to go pick that up. Uh, all of your contact info is down below in the show notes for anyone who wants to get in contact with you. But I know you've got to run, you're a busy guy, but I can't thank you enough. And is there anything else that you'd like to tell our listeners before you go? Uh, just that if you're interested in the book, uh, the, the title again is Finding Intangibles, and it can be found on Amazon. And I just want to thank you, man, for having me on. This was really enjoyable. Uh, you know, you you had sent me the questions, and I appreciate your your care and, and forethought and, and just uh, interest in the book. And this was really fun. So thank you for having me on the show, man. This was great. Thank you so much for listening to Ahead of the Curve. If you would do us a huge favor, leave a rating or review wherever you are listening. And if you enjoyed this episode, share it with someone and tag us on social media. That would help us so much with growing the show and helping others to stay ahead of the curve.